Good morning, brothers and sisters. I'm sorry that we can't be there with you this morning. We definitely miss you. Uh, but Shannon yesterday started running just a little bit of a fever and a little bit of body aches. And knowing that our, our daughter and her two kids, our grandchildren, were sick last week, uh, we decided that uh, may, maybe we shouldn't come today. And then I, I woke up this morning with a, a scratchy throat and said, yeah, it, it's just not worth the risk of getting y'all sick. So we love you and, and I'm trying to keep you healthy. Uh, but I thank God for the technology that we have available that even though I can't physically be there with you, I can still give you the message that God's put on my heart. So how's your New Year's resolution coming? Well, for those of you that made one anyway, I mean, we talked about that a few weeks ago, right? If you made one, are you sticking with it? 25% of resolutions fail within the first week. Do you know that? By February 1st, half of them have failed. By the second week of February, 80% of New Year's resolutions have failed. By the end of the year, only 9% of people that make a New Year's resolution feel they've been successful in keeping their resolution. Brothers and sisters, that is not good odds. See, we're creatures of habit. Remember Jesus said a dog returns to its own vomit? We don't like change. And when, even when we try to change, even when we know intellectually that change is good and we should change, we fail much of the time. We tend to just go right back into the same rut and do what we've always done, for better or worse. And spiritually, that's usually worse. And anytime we try to make a change in our spiritual life, it's even harder because we have an enemy who's actively fighting to stop us from changing. And... He, he loves to hit us right at the beginning, right as we're trying to make a change, because that's the easiest time to knock us back. Once we've been made the change and it's been going a while, it tends to be more likely we'll be successful. And we know, and we talked about last week, change is required if we're to enter God's kingdom. Real repentance is a total life change. And that's why on our own, it's pretty much hopeless. We're lost in our sin and there's nothing we can do about it. We're no good at changing ourselves, and we have an enemy that bullies us into staying in slavery to sin rather than walking in freedom. He does everything he can to keep us on that easy, wide road to hell that's paved with good intentions, rather than finding the narrow, difficult road that leads to life. And that's exactly why few find it. Hope is not lost, though, and that's the gospel. And of course, you know that. We have a helper, the Holy Spirit, and we have an example, Jesus Christ, who was successful and shows us how to do it. If you turn with me to Luke 3, sorry, Luke 4, we're going to take a look at that this morning. We're going to see Satan tried to knock Jesus off the path right away too. The, the path he was blazing, he's trailblazing, he's pioneering, he's making the narrow path for us to walk. And Satan hit him right, right away, tried to knock him off the path, just like he does to us. And as we see this, I'm hoping that we'll learn something about how to make our repentance last longer than New Year's resolution. How to have real faith that endures to the end. While you're turning, I want to read you something from Hebrews 12 in order to set the tone. This is a message of encouragement today. Brother Richard pointed out to me a few weeks ago that I, I tend to have God give me a lot of challenging messages. And, and that's true. And that's, that's just who God's made me to be as a preacher. Uh, this is likely to be no different, but it's not going to be challenging the sense of hellfire and brimstone. It's, it's challenging the sense of you can do it. I want to encourage you today. You see, frequently we look at Jesus' temptation as him being the perfect son of God, and we can't ever measure up. We forget that he was and is human. We remember that as God, he couldn't sin, but, but then we forget that as man, he was genuinely tempted. 
which means failing had to be a real possibility. I mean, if he couldn't do it, it's not much of a temptation, is it? Now, that seems contradictory, but it's true, and we can discuss that philosophically, the nature of Christ and the hypostatic union and all those other theological, deep, metaphysical things. We'll, we can discuss that another time. That's not what I want to get into this morning. The point I want to make today is simply that Jesus learned obedience through the things which he suffered, according to Hebrews 5.8. Like this temptation in the wilderness, this was suffering. Hebrews 4.15 says that he can sympathize with our weaknesses because he has been tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. He's not above this. He experienced it just like we do. He got through it successfully, and we can too. That's the message today. You can do it. That's why I love this passage I'm about to read you from Hebrews 12. Chapter 11, you're probably familiar with. It's the Hall of Fame of the Faith. Uh, we have all these Old Testament examples who are far from perfect but they all walked in faith. Because of their example, we can have faith too. But we're to look to Jesus as our example most of all, because he's the trailblazer of the narrow path that we're to walk. Hebrews 12 says this, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not resisted unto blood, striving against sin. So the purpose of this morning's message is to do exactly what this passage tells us to do surrounded by the witness of these Old Testament saints and the example and witness of the saints who have gone before us since Christ, since this was written, right? We have all of history as examples of faithfulness. Surrounded by all those witnesses, let's look to Jesus this morning. He's the trailblazer of the narrow path on which we run our race. He's the author. He wrote the book on how to do this. We're going to consider him so we won't be weary and faint in our minds. After all, Anybody here been crucified in obedience to the Father? You've shed blood in resisting sin like he did? No. He's actually done way more than we're ever going to experience. And he did it successfully. So that we, so we know, in following his example and following the narrow path behind him, we can do it too because we haven't gone that far. Just like he learned through his hardships, we learn through our hardships. They're God's discipline for us as his children, as Hebrews 12 goes on to say. Knowing this should encourage us and give us strength to press on as we run the race down the narrow path. So let's look together at Jesus' struggles this morning and be encouraged. We're in Luke 4. We'll start at verse 1. And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being forty days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing. And when they were ended, he afterward hungered. So this is right after his baptism. There's no events in between. Mark says it was immediately after. Jesus has taken the first step on the narrow path that he's pioneering or authoring or trailblazing so we can walk it as we follow him. And that first step is repentance, as we discussed last week, the baptism of repentance. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and we know this is the Spirit that gives us the power to do what we cannot do on our own, to be effective witnesses for him. The Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted, tested, tried. This is just like God led Israel through the wilderness after they left Egypt and passed through the waters of the Red Sea. 
We've discussed that before too, haven't we? They're ready to face war. They, sorry, Israel wasn't ready to face war. They would have turned and gone back to Egypt had God taken them the short way, directly into the promised land. So instead, God led them through the wilderness to teach them to trust him so that he could lead them into the promised land and the fight involved taking it. He had to get them ready. The whole point was that they were going to learn to trust him so that when they got to the really hard fight, they still trusted him and they were ready. Now, we know Israel failed, but Jesus succeeded where they failed, right? The wilderness is important. It's because it's where Israel gets revelation of who God is, how they get their identity as God's people, and they learn to trust him. And eventually, the next generation did. So, Jesus, in succeeding where Israel failed, makes this connection explicit by quoting from Deuteronomy chapters 6 through 8 in response to Satan's temptations. You might, you might want to go look at those. I'll read portions of it this morning. This is a recounting of God's dealing with Israel in the wilderness in response to all the temptations. Moses is reminding the next generation what happened. And Jesus is using that to say, this is what's happening to me. He passes through the water, just like Israel did. He's led into the wilderness to undergo hardship, just like Israel did. For Jesus, it's 40 days. For Israel, it's 40 years. You see the parallels? He's learning obedience through these things which he's suffering. He too is headed towards the promises God has made to him. He too has a fight to take hold of those promises. Israel had to go defeat Canaanites and giants. Jesus has got to go defeat sin and death. And that's what he's got to do in order to receive the kingdom God has promised him. He's not ready yet, though. He has to learn. And so he has to start learning here to be ready. He has to learn just like we do. He has to have his identity as the son of God solidified, just like we have to have our identity as God's sons and daughters defined for us. See, I told you we forget his humanity. He knew he's the son of God, but he had to walk through what that meant before he was ready for the cross. That's why he kept saying, my time has not yet come. He can sympathize with us because if he's one of us, he was tempted just like us. He struggled just like us and he grew through it just like us. He learned just like us, and he succeeded through the power of the Holy Spirit, and so can we. Let's look at the specifics. Jesus was tempted three different ways, and we're going to look at them one at a time. So let's start in verse 3. And the devil said to him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that of God. The first thing Satan does is to question Jesus' identity as God's son. Remember when we talked about conditional sentences before? This is one of those assumed true conditional sentences. The gist of it is, if you're the son of God, and, and you are the son of God, right? God's surely going to provide the needs of his son, won't he? Surely he doesn't want you to starve to death. You can do miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Because you're God's son, right? Surely God would will that you do that to provide for your needs. He's given you what you need to do it. Jesus responds with scripture. He cites a short section of Deuteronomy 8, but he intends the context as well, as we've talked about with other quotations. Saying that another way, he's not pulling a phrase out of context. He means what it means in the context. He understood the context. He knew Deuteronomy well. Most in that culture did. Satan certainly knew it. So they both knew what they were discussing. We're not as familiar with Deuteronomy as they were, I'm sure. So I'm going to read a little more of the context for us so that 
we get a little better understanding of what Jesus was trying to say. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee for these 40 years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee or to test thee, to try thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. Moses goes on to tell them how great the promised land is going to be when they get there. God's provided for their needs. He'll provide for the way for them to enter the promised land. And when they're in the good land and they've eaten until they're full, they're not on the manna anymore. They'll bless God because they'll remember. See, there's a point to this whole thing. God didn't just lead them into the wilderness to let them be hungry because he felt like it, just on a whim. God would be discredited and dishonored by letting his people die of starvation. It would be bad for his reputation, for his great name. No, he let them be hungry to test them, to teach them through that test. Sort of like purifying silver or gold. See, their solution, their solution to the problem was to go back to slavery where there was food, if you'll remember. Oh, we had watermelons and cucumbers and, all, and fish in Egypt, right? God's point in this whole thing was that they learned to trust him because that's more important to receiving the long-term promise than short-term hunger is. The short-term pain is worth it to get to the long-term gain. And taking matters into their own hands is a return to slavery rather than pressing forward into God's promises. Kind of sounds like what James said, right? Count it all joy. For Jesus, refusing to enter the test into which the Spirit had led him and taking matters into his own hands to end the hardship would have been going into slavery to sin. Specifically, using the power of the Spirit of God in him to satisfy his own fleshly desires, innocent though the desire may be, would have been disobedience to God. Jesus knew it was about his mission to redeem humanity, not about him. So he's willing to suffer to learn the lesson the Father had for him. And we have to do the same. We have to recognize that it's not about us, but about the mission God has given us. It's about what he's doing in us to conform us to the image of Christ and make us able to minister the gospel to the world. It's not about what we want or our comfort. So how does that look in our world? Obviously, it has implications for the prosperity gospel, folks. Jesus did not die on the cross so we can be financially wealthy in this life. He died so we can be spiritually rich by following his example of self-denial. The name it, claim it, faith is a get-rich-quick scheme prosperity gospel is another gospel, not the gospel of Jesus Christ. I also see it in Corinth as I read 1 Corinthians, and I see the same thing in some churches today. See, the Corinthians were all proud of speaking in tongues and wanted to do it publicly to show how spiritual they were. They were talking all over each other and making a big mess of things, saying, see, look at me, look at me. And that kind of pride is the opposite of Jesus' example and is using the gift of God for their own ends. It's not just tongues, though. Any gift can be abused. Let's take music, for example. If you think about it, there's a lot of Christian, quote, Christian artists that wind up either coming away from the faith and, and going into secular music, or, or they wind up just being these big superstars and, and it winds up being all about them. 
That's not to say that every prominent artist is this, but it does happen. And I think you know what I'm talking about. The better example would be people like we have here. A brother and sister lead us in music every week. And my sense of their, their heart is to serve the church. But I think they know as well as the rest of us do that it, it'd be real easy to be proud of yourself, right? And, and that's something you got to guard against. And I know you do. I'm, I'm setting you up as a good example, not a bad one. My point is that many people use any kind of gift, whether it's speaking, preaching, teaching, music, prophecy, anything else. Make money, make themselves look good in the church, provide for their own needs. And that's pride and it's sin. Those gifts are to serve others. In this church, we don't generally have that problem as much because we're a small, humble country church, right? We got to watch out for something a little different, though. As Benjamin Franklin said, sometimes we can be so humble that then we get proud of our humility and we go right back into pride. I think that's more a danger for us here. We're a small, simple church that's just coming together and following Jesus, right? Are we proud of that? And more importantly, are we using this small church to do what we want and meet our needs? Or are we considering the needs of others as more important and adjusting what we do to be able to minister the gospel to those who need it? Are we so proud of our little country church and the way we've always done things that we're unwilling to make the changes needed to reach the lost and to reach the next generation? We've talked about that before. And I just want to point out that it's the same thing, the same temptation that Jesus had using the things God's given us to satisfy our own needs and our own desires, rather than using them to serve others. And that's hard. Okay, that, I, that's the real challenging part of this message. And that's okay that it's hard. It was hard for Jesus too. And I want to encourage you today. Know that Jesus faced the same challenge. It was hard for him. It's hard for you. And he succeeded by the power of the Holy Spirit in him. And you can succeed too by the power of that same Holy Spirit that's in you. We just got to follow Jesus and keep walking the narrow path. Let's look at the next temptation. Verse 5. And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment in time. And the devil said to him, All this power I will give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me. And to whomsoever I will, I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. So Satan sees that Jesus is committing to fulfilling God's purpose rather than his own desires. So Satan adjusts tactics. He points out God's purpose for Jesus is to be king, right? You're supposed to rule the world. That's the point. That's why you're here. So Satan essentially says, Then let's fulfill your purpose. Why wait? I can give it to you right now. Just do it my way and we can, we can shortcut this whole process and get it over with. Jesus knows that Satan's shortcut leads to destruction. He knows this is a one-way ticket to slavery and death, just like Israel returning to Egypt would have been. Hard though it may be, God's way is the right way and the best way. He once again quotes scripture, and again I'll read a little bit of the broader context. This is from Deuteronomy 6, starting at verse 12. Then beware, lest thou forget the Lord, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt, from the house of bondage. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, and serve him, and shall swear by his name. Ye shall not go after other gods, of the gods of the people which are around you. For the Lord thy God is a jealous God among you, 
lest the anger of the Lord God, thy God be kindled against thee and destroy thee from off the face of the earth. <clears throat> Jesus reminds Satan that for God's people to serve another God dishonors God, and that leads to destruction of his people. For God's people to serve another God is to forget that God brought them out of slavery, and it will lead them into slavery again. Jesus knows there's no shortcuts that lead to the same destination. He has to walk the narrow path in order to make a way for us to walk it too. Skipping the journey misses the point, and thus it doesn't get to the same place. And the same thing is true for us. As we've discussed before, it's very tempting to view the start of the journey as it being completed. But we know that's not how it works, right? Quote, getting saved and being baptized isn't enduring to the end. They're not the same thing. And it's that endurance that produces the character that gives us hope, right? Romans 5, starting at verse 3. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. And that's patient endurance, as we've talked about before. That's that, that Greek word. Tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given to us. <coughs> we need these sufferings. Trying to avoid them? Thinking that we're just in an airport lounge waiting on our plane to heaven to take off because our ticket is punched? That doesn't get us to the destination. As we studied in James, we need to count these trials, tribulations, and hardships all joy. And Paul here says we glory in tribulations. So if it's a struggle to grow, if it's a struggle to keep walking the path, if it's a struggle to make the changes God's called you to make, be encouraged. It was a struggle for Jesus too. If you have the power of the Holy Spirit, you can do it too. If God has called you to do something, to make a change, to draw closer to Him, and you've started down that road and you're struggling, you can do it. Just keep following Him. Just keep walking the narrow path. Just keep going. So Jesus refuses to abuse God's power to satisfy His own desires, knowing that denying Himself is part of the plan. He refuses to shortcut God's plan knowing that the narrow, hard road is the only road that leads to the destination he wants, and that all others are part of the wide road to hell that's paved with good intentions. Satan shifts gears now and tries one more time. We'll pick up in verse 9. And he brought him to Jerusalem, and set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. This isn't a pointy pinnacle as, as the temple didn't have those. So just to kind of paint the picture for you, it's, it's most likely the roof of the royal portico at the southeast corner of the temple overlooking the Kidron Valley. See, I, I, if I had an overhead, I'd, I'd show it to you on a screen, show you a picture. But Basically, there's this rounded hill that the temple was on top of, and Herod decided he needed a bigger area for the temple. So he created reta big retaining walls with these huge, like 30-foot-wide, 20-ton blocks and, and built it up so there's this big level platform, and he backfilled, and so there's this huge flat area now on top of the hill. Of course, that retaining wall effectively makes a man-made cliff, right? And then on the top of the wall, they built these porches with a, a covered porch that and in fact, that's where the early church met when they met in the temple. It's around the court of the Gentiles. It marks the boundary of the temple. 
And on the east wall, that really is the wall of the city. And uh, if you climb up on top of that roof of the porch that's over the wall and you look down between the retaining wall and the height of the porch, that makes a really long drop. And that southeast corner would be the longest drop. It's the, it's the furthest down part. So that's why it's saying pinnacle. It's the highest point in terms of the drop. Josephus describes looking down from there as it would make you giddy. It would turn your stomach. So a fall definitely is certain death. And James was thrown down from here, and that's how he died. James, the, the apostle, I believe. Uh, so this is where we're talking about. And Satan takes Jesus up on that roof to look down this long drop that'll turn your stomach, and he changes tactics. Got it. It's not about you. Got it. You're going to glorify God, not just get the job done your way. So let's glorify him. Look, if you are the son of God, and you are, right? So assuming you are the son of God, like you say, God's not going to let you die because you have to come into your kingdom because that's what he's promised. I mean, he made promises how he'll keep you safe as you trust him. He's made promises that you're going to be king and you're, you're doing what he says. You're being faithful. Surely you can step out in faith right off that edge, right? Won't God keep his promise, especially here in his house? Once again, Jesus goes to the same section here in Deuteronomy. In fact, this is the next verses from the passage I talked about in the previous temptation. Israel had threatened to stone Moses and go back to Egypt if God didn't give them water when they were at Massa. We talked about that when we were studying Hebrews, right? In doing so, they put God to the test. They twisted his arm. They basically said, look, God, either give us something to drink or we're going to kill Moses and go back to Egypt. You choose. And God says that's why they couldn't enter into his rest. That's why they waited till the next generation. They didn't trust him. They twisted his arm. Jesus again quotes a partial verse, but just a few more words make it clear. This is exactly what he's referring to. Deuteronomy 6.16 Ye shall not tempt the Lord your God as ye tempted him in Massa. Jesus makes it clear that even in doing the will of God, he will not press God to perform. Trying to manipulate God is sin. So what's that mean to us? Well, it means we don't do foolish things and expect God to clean up the mess. All things work together for good, right? Yeah, and sometimes that good is us learning from our mistakes, not God fixing them for us. Let me put it another way real quick. You know I'm a retired sailor, right? And so an analogy from that is the best way I can explain it. Surface warfare officers, like I used to be, tend to be rather proud of their ability to drive a ship well. They tend to brag about it if they're good at it. They tend to brag about how they got out of a tight spot or did something particularly skillful to avoid a collision or, or to get through a tight spot. An old captain told me something once about driving ships that stuck with me for a long time. He said, the first rule of good ship handling is to drive the ship in such a way that you don't need to use expert ship handling. If you think about it, that's true of driving too. Would you rather be a, a skillful precision driver or be very good at looking ahead and avoiding hazards so you don't have to be that good? That's true for us, too. We don't need to show how holy we are by, quote, stepping out in faith. We need to use some sense. Most of the time when I've heard people say stepping out in faith, it's people doing what they want to do and hoping God will make it possible. That's not always true, but it happens a lot. It's a very real temptation. It's what Jesus was tempted with. And we can be tempted in it in many, many areas for everything from expanding a ministry. We're going to step out in faith and do this new initiative and, and hope God blesses it. And I know, I'm sure he will. 
ignoring COVID precautions. We'll step out in faith and it'll be okay. God won't let any sickness come nigh our dwelling. That's in the same passage Satan quoted to Jesus here. And I've heard people quote it in saying, we're going to ignore COVID precautions and do our thing. It's tempting God. We do it when we buy something we can't afford and say, well, I'll, I'll just get it and trust God to provide for my needs. Uh, no, <laughs> he did provide for your needs and you blew it. He's not necessarily obligated to fix your problem. Now, that's not to say we shouldn't trust him to do the miraculous. Don't get me wrong. If he tells us to go do something, we need to do it. And I've seen God do miracles out on the mission field. But here's the key. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, right? The quote word in that verse implies hearing God's voice, not spoken word, not the written word. It's spoken word. Okay, it's rhema, not logos. In other words, if God tells you to do something and you do it, that's going to be faith. If you decide to do something and then trust God, that's presumption. Know the difference. To be real specific, I want to talk about what's going on this morning. When I talked about COVID and we need to continue steadfastly in fellowship, I think I was clear, but I want to be very clear. I was not saying ignore COVID precautions. And you can see that by the fact that I'm recording this this morning rather than being there with you. Let's don't be stupid. What I really meant to imply, and I didn't say outright, was maybe we can be creative in finding ways to stay connected. Do things in a way that we haven't done them before that'll let us continue in fellowship while still being safe with COVID. Maybe a few more phone calls. Maybe we can figure out how to use Zoom. I don't know. Maybe we can record a message and play it on our phone rather than being there in person. I'm, I'm doing what I was talking about. And I, I just want to make clear that was the point. Ignoring a clear danger and calling it trusting God is precisely the sin Jesus avoided. And we need to follow his example. Testing God in this way is coming off the narrow path to following Jesus. It's just as surely that as abusing spiritual power for our own gain or trying to shortcut and not walk the path at all. Jesus understood this. He knew he needed to walk the path so we could follow him. And he stayed on that path through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the same spirit we have as believers. That means you and I can stay on the path too. So how does this work out for him now that he's avoided these three attempts to undermine his ministry and knock him off the narrow path? Verse 13. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And there went out a fame of him throughout all the region round about. And he taught their synagogues, being glorified of all. Putting it the way James did, Jesus resisted the devil and he fled. But the devil would be back. We sometimes get the impression this was the only time Jesus was tempted. It wasn't. He was human just like us. He constantly had conflict and contradictions between his own desires and God's will. And we know from James that it's when we fulfill our desires in contrast to God's will that temptation happens and sin can enter if we give in to it, right? Jesus had to deal with that because he had fleshly human desires. He dealt with it his whole life. And it's worth noting that the desires aren't wrong. They weren't wrong for him. They're not wrong for us. It is not wrong to be hungry. It's wrong to abuse the gifts God's given me to satisfy my own desires. It's not wrong wanting to fulfill God's purpose for my life. We should want to do that. It's wrong to want to shortcut the process to make it easy 
rather than to do it God's way. It's not wrong to trust God, but it's wrong for me to presume that God will do what I want if I'm manipulating. Matthew notes that the angels ministered to Jesus after the temptation. That probably means food and water. Jesus didn't abuse power, and God provided for his needs. He did it through others, not through Jesus providing for himself. Jesus eventually did get the kingdom, or he eventually will. We're still waiting, and he is too, right? He's still waiting and trusting God, not shortcutting the process, because he knows that doing it God's way, in God's time, is the right way. We can see here in Luke that Jesus went on with his ministry, and he indeed trusted God and received recognition. God definitely came through miraculously for him when God was ready to do it, not when Jesus felt the need to test him. He eventually got or will get everything he was tempted with, every need satisfied, but he gets it God's way, and he learned and grew through the struggle. So my encouragement for you today, brothers and sisters, is this is exactly how it works for us too. If it was easy, we would not grow in our faith. If it's easy, we would not be perfected. We would not be conformed to the image of Christ. Satan's going to try to knock you off the path following Jesus. And he's going to try to do it right off the bat. You saw it in the parable of the sower, right? Soon as the word comes, Satan comes and tries to steal it away. He wants to do it up front before it gets root and gets strong. He's going to try to undermine what God is doing in and through you. So if you made a commitment with me a couple of weeks ago to continue steadfastly in the apostles' teaching, continue steadfastly in fellowship, continue steadfastly in prayer, I'm guessing you've probably already seen temptation to give up on that. I certainly have. I'm not above this, and there's no shame in that. Jesus wasn't above it either. So hang in there, brothers and sisters, just like Jesus did. Look to him as an example. He did it. You can too. By the power of the same Holy Spirit that was in him, that's in you. And when you do, you're going to grow in faith. You're going to grow in love. You're going to grow in spirit. And ultimately, we'll grow in numbers too. God's going to teach you through this. And then he'll be able to do more with you than you can possibly imagine. And if you stumble, get back up and start walking again. It's okay. You can do it. And even if you're not strong enough to walk, you know what? Just get up and stand. In the end, sometimes just standing's enough. I'll close with this quote from Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul tells us exactly that, after describing the nation, nature of the fight that we have. After you've done everything, everything you can do, just stand. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Father, I thank you for the example that Jesus sets for us. I thank you for sending him to be the trailblazer, to be the pioneer, to cut the narrow path through the wilderness so that we can follow him and come to you. Thank you for setting us free from slavery, for giving us the baptism of repentance so that we can come off the wide road and follow Jesus. It's hard, God. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to help us. We need your grace. 
Help us in our weakness, we pray. Teach us to be like Jesus. Conform us to the image of your Son. Help us to stand strong. And as Jesus prayed, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, brothers and sisters. I appreciate your patience with me. Next week, I intend to be preaching from Luke 4, 16 through 30, as Jesus introduces his ministry. Uh, you can also look at Matthew 13, 53 through 58, and Mark 6, 1 through 6 as parallel passages. If you want to, you can also read ahead for the rest of Luke chapter 4 and 5. There's a lot of miracles and stuff. I'm going to skip up to chapter 6 the next week. So if you want to go ahead and start reading that, just to get a feel for the flow and the miracles and so forth, to kind of have the context yourself, you can do that. But next week we'll be in Luke 4, 16 through 30. Thanks for being here with me and for letting me be there with you virtually. God bless. I love you, and I pray for you.